everyone to today's Greenhouse uh, Book Talk. We're so excited to uh, welcome today Daniel McFarlane, who has a brand new book, literally launching tomorrow, uh, September 1st. Um, Daniel is an associate professor at the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability at Western Michigan University. And his book is Fixing Niagara Falls, Environment, Energy, and Engineers at the World's Most Famous Waterfall. And that book is from uh, University of British Columbia Press. Um, and it's, as I said, just coming out. So we're very thrilled to have the very first official talk and book launch uh, for this book. So we'll give it over to you uh, to introduce us to it. All right. Thanks very much, Dolly and Finn Arniff and the Greenhouse Gang for putting this on and for having me. I do have a copy of the book right here. Um, so it's exciting to be able to give the first talk about it the day before it, it comes out. And it is strange to do it in these surreal times, as we've just all been, been talking about. So this isn't escapism, but for me, it's an hour of not thinking about what's going on around me. My kids starting school today <laughs> and all, all you academics, um, who are going back to the classroom or not really going back to the classroom. Thank you for those of you who are joining in or might watch this later. So to talk about the book, I'll just give a little bit of background on approach. And I'm not going to try to cover the whole book, of course, in, in 15 minutes, but I'll try to give some of, the, uh, some of the highlights. So in the book, I open with the provocation of sorts that you could almost consider Niagara Falls fake. And that's because it's been so manipulated, even though everyone thinks of it as, you know, one of these epitomes of, of the natural sublime and those sorts of things. But the reality is it's been heavily engineered and changed to achieve different goals. So this book is, is a history of how that happens and, and how that comes about. And so some of the key organizing ideas or concepts are that, you know, Niagara Falls is transformed into a type of hybrid infrastructure where things like water and weeds are themselves part of the infrastructure. And that's because there's, there's two main goals. Uh, to change Niagara Falls so you can divert water for hydroelectricity, but at the same time, change it in a way that keeps it looking the same. So that's for the tourist aspect. So you want it's actually been radically re-engineered, but to look more like itself in a way. Um, so in the book, I'm focusing mostly on the role of the state and so the public hydroelectricity. Uh, I don't look as much at the private development, which was some of the most important earlier aspects, but by about the 1950s, all but one of the private hydroelectric stations are um, public or no longer exist. So this is, I mean, this is, in my mind, explicitly environmental and water history, of course, but uh, I very much draw on history of technology and biotech, science and technology studies, as well as Niagara Falls is the border between Canada and the US and Ontario and New York. So this is uh, out of necessity, it's transnational borderlands history, Canadian American relations, environmental diplomacy. And because it's hydroelectricity, of course, it gets into using energy humanities. And um, yeah, so I'm drawing from a lot of historiographies and fields. How the book came about is pretty straightforward. There's no real fantastic story. Um, I did my dissertation on uh, the St. Lawrence Seaway, the creation of that, which is basically a downriver <laughs> or a downstream river uh, of the Niagara. So I realized how, through the course of that research, I realized how manipulated Niagara Falls was. So 
pretty early in my dissertation that I realized that that would be the next project that needed to be separated out and get its own book. And that almost became one of those cases. That's the book you really want to do now, but you got to finish what you're doing before you move on onto the next project. So that became the, the, the postdoc project I uh, started working on as soon as I was done my dissertation. Um, for the purposes of today, I'm mostly going to skip over the first half or three chapters of the book, which covers from so the deeper past up to the middle of the 20th century. And that's when you have the, the 1950 Niagara River Diversion Treaty, which is really the hinge point of the book. So just in a nutshell, to go over those early chapters that looks at the process of settler colonialism in the Niagara area, how you had to move people out of the way to uh, make it, free it up for settler societies, then the early industrial developments, especially in the 19th century, where it's driven more by hydraulic power. That's followed by a preser preservation movement to free Niagara Falls. That's when you get the, the, the famous parklands built at the waterfall. And that is actually, I won't go too into it too much. Part, we see that as this altruistic thing to create parkland. That was really, a, in many ways, about turning the areas right at the waterfall, preserving that for tourism and turning everything else around it into a sacrifice zone for hydroelectricity. So that actually had more sinister motives than we might actually ascribe to it. So I cover that, but I won't go uh, much into that. Into the 20th century, you get uh, an increasing amount of hydro stations. Some of them take a, a turn being the biggest in the world. I mean, yeah, you have at one point, I think around 1905, all the hydroelectric stations in Canada and the US are producing as much electricity as all the rest of the United States put together. So this is a pretty big deal um, at that time. So there's this tension between beauty or tourism and power, and that kind of characterizes most of the 20th century, and as well as the, uh, the other wild card in there that is that Niagara Falls erodes quite naturally, several feet per year it moves back. Some years it was four, some years it was seven. And so part of the, what got thrown into this was diverting water, not coincidentally, will redu reduce the erosion rate. So many industrialists claimed we need to divert water for power and for electrochemicals in order to save the waterfall so it doesn't erode. Um, as well as they were beginning to think they could control how, by doing so, they could control the mist and spray because people don't like getting wet, don't like getting soaked apparently when they go to Niagara Falls, which you can understand if you're, you know, in the 19th century, you're wearing a, a huge heavy Victorian dress climbing down a ladder, um, getting soaked might be a problem. So first half of the 20th century, the US and Canada go to work trying to figure out, they create binational engineering boards to try to figure out how to best create their maximum utilitarian scenario. Um, that results in three different diplomatic agreements over the first half of the 20th century, none of which come into effect. So in 1929, 1932, and 1941, there's agreements that would allow the US and Canada to remake Niagara Falls on a grander scale. None of those can pass the US Senate for, for different reasons um, I won't get into. But that, that finally in 1950, the Niagara River Diversion Treaty is signed and that does actually come into effect. And that, sort of, that heralds the remaking on a large scale of Niagara Falls. So under the terms of that, that treaty, the 1950 treaty, what Canada and the US are allowed to do is divert the majority of the water that would go over Niagara Falls through tunnels around it to hydroelectric stations that are roughly five miles downstream. So in combination with this treaty, both New York and Ontario replace most of their existing 
hydro stations with two new massive ones on, on each side. The treaty also outlines the construction of what are called the International Niagara Control Works. So these are different, a different sort of suite of different remedial works that will allow the water to, to be diverted and allow Niagara Falls, the waterfall itself, the shape of it to be changed so that you can hide that you're diverting so much water. And those would be built by Ontario Hydro for Ontario and the US Army Corps of Engineers. So in terms of some more specifics, the Niagara River around 1950, it runs about 200,000 cubic feet per second. So this treaty says that during the daylight hours of tourist season, the two countries um, combined can take 100,000 cubic feet per second, so half of the water. At nighttime during the tourist season and for all of the fall and all of the winter, they can take um, 100, they only have to leave 50,000 cubic feet per second flowing over the waterfall. In other words, for more than half the year, they're taking three quarters of the water that would otherwise go over the waterfall. As you can imagine, that would have a detrimental impact on how the waterfall is going to look and be bad for the tourist industry. So that's the purpose of these remedial works that are built. Um, so these are weirs, dams, excavations, rock fills, all these different things overseen by the International Joint Commission to change how the water actually flows. And this involves shrinking the horseshoe falls. So if you've got less water and you want it to still look uh, like a full amount, you shrink how big it is and you carve out the lip. So a big part of this and something I go into in the book quite a bit is this involved um, some pretty groundbreaking use of hydraulic models to plan how to do all of that. So both countries built models and this gets into really interesting questions about expertise over a, across a border, scientific uncertainty and the use of models uh, for planning these, these sorts of things. And it really speaks to the iterative cut and try method that they did use, but, but that's on purpose. Sometimes we can see that as, oh, they're just guessing. But there, there's a method um, to what they were doing. So I, so I get into uh, the engineering process quite a bit. I was lucky to have the internal access to the internal engineering records of when they think no one's watching and they're actually saying to each other, I don't know what it is. Do you know what it is? I, well, that looks better. Okay, well, we'll, we'll try that. So it's this back and forth of to the model, to the river, which is the prototype, and going back and forth trying to adjust them. And it's really interesting because they even incorporate organic elements such as weed and ice, weeds and ice, into how the river should run. So they are, in a way, enrolling those organic factors as parts of the actual machine that they're uh, trying to turn the waterfall into. I mean, this involves things, again, controlling how much mist and spray is going to come up. They invent, uh, they've invented a telecolorometer to measure at different flow volumes whether the water has the right color to meet their standards. And one of the specifications for how much water should go over was actually what would best reflect uh, the colored lights that they shine on the waterfall at night. So there's a lot of aesthetic <laughs> aspects that go into these technical decisions. And so they shrink the lip of the Horseshoe Falls by about 355 feet, um, which is you know, pretty significant. Uh, excavate about 100,000 cubic yards of rock. Basically, the, the Niagara River where it goes, or the Horseshoe Falls where it goes over the waterfall was a V. When you have lower water, it concentrates more in the middle. So they dug the V out so it's more of a flat U. So you have, instead of eight or 10 feet of water in the middle of the Horseshoe Falls and a few feet at the end, now it's more dispersed more evenly. And so the actual verbiage they were using, uh, the engineers, was to create an uninterrupted curtain of water 
and that was in order to provide the impression of volume. Um, so the point was to make it look like it was still just as nice of a waterfall and still just as impressive. Also to make sure it has an unbroken crest line without little bits of rock um, stip, uh, sticking out when the water gets lower. Um, I won't say much about the, or I won't say anything more about the creation of the hydroelectric stations. That's its own chapter, um, chapter four. A lot of what I've just been talking about is the bulk of chapter five. And the last chapter before the introduction looks at the 1965 to 1975 attempt or a campaign to preserve and enhance the American Falls, which is the, the smaller waterfall. The American Falls are about 10% of the water usually and the Horseshoe Falls are about 90. So essentially the American side got jealous that the Canadian side had got this big renovation and that was in improving tourism because we're at this point in time, they're getting, you know, still 6 million people a year on each side, more or less come to come to visit the waterfall. So this was a campaign to see if they could reclothe the American Falls to make it look better as well. Main problem there is because there's less water, all the rock that erodes and tumbles to the base and then builds up there called the talus doesn't get um, worn away by the water. Um, so by this point, there'd been some rock falls and the talus or the boulders was half the height of the actual waterfall. So that stops it from being a sheer drop and more of drop with a bit of a bit of a cascade. So there's this uh, big cross-border investigation. They turn off the American Falls in 1969 completely. Um, during the Horseshoe Falls renovations, they turned it off in stages with cofferdams, but they hadn't turned off the whole thing at one time. Uh, so they turn it off, leave it that way for much of the year. Long story short, they actually decide to not undertake extensive renovations. And this very much speaks to, this is 1965 to 1975. It's very clear the impact of the environmental movement a changing ethos among the engineers, because it was, it was actually the engineers themselves and um, a lot of the experts who were saying, well, it, it might actually be wrong now to intervene. We should let nature run its natural course. So it's a, an interesting contradistinction to what happened in the decades before to, to the other, other waterfall. So, and there's a lot of other really interesting aspects where they, they use models this time to try to test people's emotions about what they see. So it gets into lots of interesting side channels there, but I'll just sort of leave you with that teaser about the American Falls part. And I think to conclude, I'll just read a little passage from uh, the conclusion of the book. So, Niagara Falls is dynamic, perpetually transforming and moving itself, but an uncontrolled and constantly eroding Niagara was in inimical to the tourist and industrial infrastructure dependent on a waterfall with a fixed address. Instead of a, instead of a messy receding waterfall, during the early Cold War, a flowing facade was frozen in place to the greatest extent possible. Achieving the desired visual effect with just a fraction of the river's flow required shrinking the crest line of the Horseshoe Falls and strategically manipulating the riverbed directly above the falls. In the minds of those designing the changes, this was preserving Niagara by protecting it from itself before erosion disfigured it or moved it too far upriver. Technocrats concealed their manipulation and industrialization of Niagara's waterscape through a pro process of disguised design, which relied heavily on scale models. Other major hydroelectric projects of the high modernist era uh, dammed and obliter obliterated the rivers they remained. But Niagara was an exception. As Niagara Falls was turned into a tap, it was altered to make it look more like itself 
or at least a sanitized version of its past self. Nevertheless, planners hoped that the casual observer or tourist would be none the wiser that they were gazing at a, a simulacrum of Niagara Falls. The engineers believed they could quanti quantitatively assess and model qualitative aspects, such as emotional responses to different versions of a waterfall, as they sought to empower nature so that it could be even more productive. And I'll finish there. Thank you. That was great. Uh, it's always interesting, I think, to hear about the um, Niagara Falls, which you have, a, of course, a personal history with, too, because in April, it was 15 years ago, we did our honeymoon there, right? That classic, uh, yeah. very classic American honeymoon. <laughs> so it's always, uh, yeah, good to hear more about the place, too, because it, uh, it was a very cool place to visit, I think especially because it keeps popping up in the literature. Uh, I'm going to have some questions about it later, but I thought uh, I could let Eva ask first. Um, I'll un ask you to unmute, Eva. Yeah. Hello, Danielle. Hello. Long time. No, see. Uh, first, I, I, I think I will come back to some more questions. Uh, later, but but first, could you say something about uh, Niagara Falls before it was harnessed? Uh, maximum, minimum. Uh, do we know anything about that? Is there any measurements? There, and there how are. how much can you say when, when now we have a flow that is changing between day and night, uh, but but between autumn, winter, spring, and so on before? Right, so I mean, first off, it's a fairly dependable river in terms of water flow because it's not mountain-fed, glacier-fed. So it's subject to you know, what else is going on in the Great Lakes. But, but going back in time, oh, okay. they have very imprecise baselines, partly because it was so hard to measure because it's such a big mm. waterway. So some of the earliest technology for measuring water flows was actually done at Niagara Falls. So I do cover that in the book, but they were all over the place. They thought one measurement had it at 340,000 cubic feet per second around the 1850s. Another was 270,000, I think in the 1870s. Now part of that may have been some natural variability, but they honestly didn't have good baselines. And what I argue in the book is that they actually, and whether it was subconsciously or on purpose, was, um, shrunk how much they, water they had so it looked like they weren't stealing as much water away. So there's intentional revising down of how much the real water flow is in order to, because um, the, the way the 1950 treaty says is, is you have to leave 50,000 cubic feet per second flowing over. That's kind of, uh, they had changed it around from earlier in the previous decades where the, the rule would have been you're allowed to take a certain amount and that's what you have to measure. This was they measured how much you had to leave going over and that would obscure how much you were allowed to take. So if, it's, mm -hmm. if the river's running 300,000, you're taking 250,000. So it looks better to say you're leaving 50,000 than, <laughs> than taking. But, but part of the story is no, that they, they don't have a very good idea of, uh, of what it was. And I mean, the same goes for some of the baselines of, you know, Asa Gray famously said that the, the area around Niagara Falls because of all the mist and spray was maybe the most biodiverse in, on the North American continent. It turns out that may not be actually that accurate either. And so all these shifting and unknown baselines are a problem for comparing to the deeper history. So because of the lakes, it didn't change much over the year, over year. Right. Um, okay. I mean, it does change. Uh, so we've had very high water levels in the Great Lakes this year. Mm -hmm. So that's 
there's uh, other control works that can yeah, okay. help to maintain as well. All right, so um, Dolly has a question. Yeah, I was wondering about the aesthetics um, of the, the falls and how much, I mean, it's kind of how, how much um, aesthetic um, paintings and photographs um, from earlier played a part in the engineers deciding what this fall should look like. So, I mean, there's the measurements themselves, how much water, but, but that kind of aesthetic quality of it. So what were they using um, to make those assessments? Right, that's yeah, a, gr a great question because Niagara Falls, it's been argued was the most common picture from North America in the 19th century, whether that's pictograph or painting. So there, there are actually, and some of the earliest photographs that exist are of Niagara Falls. So that actually is a pretty good visual record of, of what it's like. So the engineers did use that. So, I mean, they, they were, they had a tricky business of, they were the ones trying, and this is where the models came into to visually model things, but they're trying to, they would compare paintings. So they, uh, as far as I can tell, they used Church's famous paintings of Niagara Falls and other photographs to say, okay, this is how it looks. So we, we wanna get it looking as close as possible to this. And so there's uh, records of you know, using that as a comparison. So it's a mix of going back and forth between those qualitative and quantitative things of they you know, look at a painting or a photograph and then try it on the model at a certain flow volume and say, okay, that looks approximate enough. Um, there's always the problems of extrapolation. It's hard to, you can't really model mist. You can't model color very well. Um, but they would get, you know, get their best guesses on the model and then try it out um, on the real waterfall. So they're definitely, I mean, they would ask tourists too, or they do surveys. But again, this was a lot of the experts believing that they themselves knew what was best or what tourists wanted. So if they got, if they schooled themselves on those paintings, those photographs, they would best be able to judge whether it would look right when, when people came. I think they could also probably count on many people never having seen it before or, you know, sort of the shifting baseline of a waterfall that big, you come back every 10 years, you may not notice. People did notice in some cases, but um, they could count on that a bit too. So um, they, they didn't, I, I know they were using those paintings and images because they filter into the discussion, but there's no real great, I don't have someone's diary of five pages of how they tried to compare it to the church painting or anything like that, but they, they definitely did use those visual representations to factor that in as one of the inputs for, for modeling. Yeah, I just want to ask a follow-up question then about the way we we see things and how, in a way, the visual expectations also shape this. Then, so th this is also the case with us academics: how previous uh, scholarly works and concepts also shape this. So for me, it's of course David Nye's American Technological Sublime, which I don't think you used that concept when you talked about it. Do you use it in your book? Are you in dialogue with it? Would you add to it, modify it in some way? It would be interesting to hear. Yeah, I do use it in the book. Um, he actually uses Niagara Falls uh, and the lighting of Niagara Falls as an example. So that's actually one of the concepts I'm uh, very directly in concept uh, with. Um, other people have said Niagara Falls is a calculated sublime after it's been remade or a manufactured sublime. Um, so that, that's one way of tying that in into that. So uh, I definitely am in, engaging that and I think trying to 
build on it. Um, not that I'm proposing anything rad radically new, but it's definitely a concept I like and, and use. Yeah. All right. So Mauritz has a question and I will find a mute there. Let's see. All right. Thank you very yeah. much. Thanks, Dan, for the talk. Uh, I have to ask a question about engineers, right? Um, you, 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 you seem to use the group, at least in the talk, as, as a uniform group. And the engineers that I know and I encounter in my own work necessarily don't agree with each other. So could you, could you elaborate a little bit on the disagreements in the group of engineers that you find it? I mean, I'm not saying they should always disagree, but I would be happy to know whether they disagreed. Yeah, they absolutely disagreed, especially between agencies and especially between Canada and the U.S. That's uh, not something I went into, but something I thought about through discussions with, with, with you before. Two, which is uh, in the book, I talk about the uh, national differences in engineering. So in some ways, there's some important similarities where they've, they're educated in the same way. They have the same assumptions about what they're trying to do. But in the models, it was very obvious. They got into lots of fights about the Canadian model is better than the American one. And the Ameri Army Corps of Engineers saying, well, Ontario Hydro, they're not up to our league, so we should be the one that run the models. The reason they actually ended up doing two separate sets of models in each country was because they couldn't agree on who should run the models. So well, a lot of that internal discussion was arguing over whose model was right. Um, not to mention Canadians would often, Canadians were less concerned about protecting the scenic splendor of Niagara Falls because the hydroelectricity is proportionally more important to, the, to them than it is to the United States. We're talking like hydroelectricity was still 90-some percent of Canadian electricity closer to the middle of the 20th century with much of that coming from the Niagara, Great Lakes, St. Lawrence area. So Canadians were in some ways less, and Ontarians, less concerned with protecting the aesthetic aspect, um, where there's actually uh, more of an impulse from the American side, certainly only from certain segments. It wasn't widely uniform, but there were groups that formed in the US to try to protect it. So that infiltrated into the engineering discussions as well. So that, yeah, there was some, uh, I include even a little bit of the dialogue in the book verbatim where they're, they're, they're arguing over whether the Canadian side is right or whether the American side. And a lot of it is just national chauvinism or favor of, we got it right because that's our model, yours is wrong. And then they, what they end up doing is just compromising sometimes. So what they did was not actually based on the best technical specifications. It was meeting in the middle over the, the competing results um, that they got from the Canadian versus the American model. So that's one of the, the, I think the stronger examples. So yeah, for the purposes of not taking too long, I sort of treated the engineers in my talk as a amorphous mass, but certainly in the book, there's a lot of differentiation between, and then even within each country or province or state, the, the federal government versus the provincial and Ontario Hydro versus the provincial government. There's important differences too. All right, so Eva has another question. <clears throat> um, in Sweden and Norway, we, we also have um, some waterfalls, but the, 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 that has been very famous, but if, the difference here is that we just open them for a day or two a year. Uh, so they, it's announced to, and they sh we call it tourist water. Or, uh, so we don't, like, like uh, Niagara Falls, it's, it's not, they're not running all the time, but so, certain days in the summer, of course. Um, 
but you started to say that that uh, that Niagara Falls is a fake fake waterfall or something like that. And as I understand it, the fakeness is in some ways that it is less water than it usually is, should be. And you call it also hybrid. But, and you say it's, but is that unique? I mean, isn't most uh, rivers that are harnessed, especially for for, um, uh, hydropower are fake? In some way, if I, I use the, the, your words for it. I mean, so, so in what way then makes, make this, is this unique for Niagara? What, what is different from all the other harnessed rivers and waterfalls around the world? Right, so a good question. And in the book, I talk about your work too and, and those, some of those waterfalls mm. at the beginning, other examples. I think what makes it different though is and Niagara Falls, I mean, scale is part of the story, I guess, but also most of those other places, there's a dam or different things, you know that there's an intervention, that there's infrastructure to control it. Niagara Falls, it's almost totally hidden and you're not meant to know. So, um, I mean, they, they did discuss something uh, like Trottenham Falls and things like that, where it would just be turned on for certain days of the week and turned off on the rest. But the way I'm not sure there's been any other waterfall that's been done in the same way to still care about the aesthetics as much to make it, to hide the fact that they are diverting most of the water, most of the other waterfalls. It's very obvious, I think, that you turn it on and off and it's uh, turned off the rest of the time. So it's that disguising of what they're doing. So a deception on purpose, I, I think, was different than most of the other sort of large scale rivers, the Columbia, the St. Lawrence, all these other ones. You know it's been dammed, you can see it. And what you go to see is, go celebrate the dam and go look at it. This is, you can, they don't totally hide it because you can go look at the hydro stations downstream. This is meant to keep the waterfall looking natural while still taking most of it. So I guess I would argue that there's not many other cases of large waterfalls, rivers that are meant to still looking natural at that point while still uh, taking most of the water for hydroelectricity. Yeah, um, I had a question following up with that then about this, this idea of um, it trying to look natural, not artificial. Where did that intersect with environmentalism in the 70s? Did you have protesters or people who, who said, no, you shouldn't be doing this to the river? Um, and, and where did those come into your story? Yeah, uh, that was a key part of it. There were, uh, so Canada, U.S. were, all of these remedial works had to be supervised by the International Joint Commission, which is the body that oversees any changes to uh, Canada, U.S. border water. So it, um, its normal way of doing things would be to have um, public sessions where they get input for approval. And so they did that in the 1950s, and it was fairly perfunctory. It was more telling people what you were going to see. And actually, as much as anything else, it was trying to control the narrative. Because if you're turning off Horseshoe Falls for two years, or for half of it to remake it, people are going to see that. So that was more about propaganda, almost, to control what people were going to hear or say about it. Once those big changes were done in the 1950s, people did start complaining. There was newspaper articles. Um, chambers of Commerce complained in the, from the two cities on each side. Um, and so when they started redoing the American Falls, they stepped up even more the amount of public input sessions. And they put up, uh, you know, 
um, boards or different information stations to say, here's what the options are. Um, and they'd ask people to vote and they put out pamphlets and say, would you like that? Some of the talus removed, all of it removed, left natural. Um, and, and so in that case, it was much, wasn't as much about manufacturing consent, which it had been earlier. Now it was about getting honest feedback. And then between 1965 and 1975, the feedback clearly became negative. Um, no, we don't want to do this. So they actually then hired sort of a special group of uh, landscape architects and environmentalists, and they very uniformly said, no, you should not change this. Um, and then the engineers themselves were trying to say, no, no, we shouldn't do this. So it was, so in a way it was driven more by the elites, but they were given the permission to do it, I guess, or the leeway to do it by the public support and the public backlash um, against what had changed all, already. And that was very clearly driven by the environmental movement and what was changing. But you can tell by the type of language people are talking about Rachel Carson and citing that and all these sorts of, uh, sorts of things. So I think it's very, very tightly tie, tied to that. So if the, the goal was to preserve in a way the, the, or enhance the visual presentation of the river, what happened with the other functions of the river in this process? I mean, they also, they have biological functions, there's fish and other species who live there and so on. Uh, what, what happened with the modifications there? Right, uh, you have a few, few different levels, which have been the original, you know, the original construction when they're blasting out the entire riverbed. So of course that's gonna decimate species that are using that at that time. One of the big impacts is that when they divert the water, so there's big tunnels that, you know, a few thousand feet north of, um, or south of Niagara Falls, there's big tunnels, more or less beyond the view of the tourist if you're at the waterfall that take or abstract all that water. Um, and there's a dam there that helps, helps do that across, across part of the river. So from that point until that water is removed until about five miles down the river gorge when it's returned, you're missing the majority of the water. So that's going to do a lot. You've got different water levels, different water speeds, different water temperatures. So that um, decimated a lot of the fishing, the aquatic life um, between sort of in that five mile distance. So that seemed to be the, one of the major um, biodiversity impacts. Also with all that less water, you had a lot less spray and moisture. So that along with, you know, just to all the things that are built around it, people walking around really changed the flora and fauna that's on the islands, like Goat Island and all the area around it. So, I mean, some people have, you know, writing a memoir say that it, it totally changed a lot of the natural aspects of, of the area up to where the water go, goes back into the river. Um, you know, people talk about whether it changes the color of it as well. It's not, it, it does circumscribe the erosion processes, but this is sort of off the topic, but very interestingly, it doesn't actually appear they actually stopped erosion that much despite their claims. What's very interesting is there's been really one study of erosion since the 1950s by some Japanese scholars. And that's what the government experts in Canada and the US then cite. But those original scholars in this one article basically say they're uncertain about all of this. And so I use GIS mapping along with one of my colleagues to try to measure using aerial photos how much erosion has changed in the last 50 years. And so erosion has slowed down They've stopped erosion sort of at the feet of the Horseshoe Falls, but not in the middle. So one of the claimed goals that they were really stopping erosion isn't entirely true anyway. Um, and I mean, this is speculation, but I wonder if in a way it's almost like building up pressure. If you don't have these constant little rock falls, you're just putting off a bigger major rock fall to the future. And indeed the erosion has accelerated a fair bit in the last 
10 years, at least at the peak in the middle of a waterfall. So those, those are some of the, I mean, in a connected environmental, this isn't really your question, but in a connected way, I argue that all, you know, Love Canal and all the electrochemicals are, in, are an almost inevitable result of Niagara Falls. There are, Love Canal is presented as the antithesis to the beauty of Niagara Falls. It's the direct result of Niagara Falls. So a lot of the environmental impact of chemicals in, is in a very direct way the result of changing Niagara Falls, I would say as well. Thank you. So Eva has another question. Well, if you have someone else on, on the list, so, okay. Um, I, I have a more rhetoric question for you first. I don't, I'm not sure you can, can answer it, but why, why, why does people want to look at falling water? Mm -hmm. it's 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 kind of fascinating but but you, you can think of it but uh i have a more um specific question perhaps i i i have visited both niagara falls and iguazu uh, in brazil and, and paraguay and it's it's very obvious that that the the, the hydropower part was more obvious in the Iguazu and, and they, they, they wanted us as tourists also to, to see the hydropower station. I was down in the turbine hall, there is, it's nearly one kilometer long, it's, it's, it's amazing to be in that room. But, but when we visited Niagara Falls, it was much more complicated to see the, uh, the hydropower sites, if you say so. So ha have you discussed because Iguazu is also a, a tourist icon and it's also uh, heavy used for hydropower and it's on a border between uh, Paraguay and Brazil. Is there any similarities between uh, how, for example, water is distributed between the fall and the hydropower stations? Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's, it's, it's a very good comparison to Niagara Falls or one of the more similar situations. So th there's some contradictions because at, when they opened the power station, power stations at Niagara Falls, um, they use a, a term called hydrotourism. They were actually, they built visiting stations right into them. They did all sorts of um, infrastructure. And I mean, the amount of people, I mean, and they actually had tours of the construction while it was going on. It was meant to be a tourist attraction in addition to the waterfall. Um, but they're almost separated from each other. You go see the natural waterfall in one part, but they have to go somewhere else to see the industrial sublime of the hydropower station. So they went to great lengths to ensure that they'd show off the power of the, the state um, when you go, went to go see those power stations. That's declined since 9-11. That's part of the story. Um, so they've shut off access to a lot of them. Um, in fact, when the ACH was in Toronto, I think in 2013, I led one of the tours that went to go see those Niagara power stations. So you can still get a limited view if you book with a group ahead of time, maybe. And the New York side still has a visitor station with a museum and an overlook, but they don't really take you down into the bowels of, of the plant anymore. Um, so, I mean, it sort of gets into, I think, the earlier question. This is where they tried to have two, two separate parts where you see the natural sublime at the waterfall without the industrial part intruding on that view. But if you want to see that industrial part, then you can go downstream to, to see it. Um, <laughs> falling water, yeah, it's a good, good, good question. I like looking at falling water. I mean, I went through, 
I like to joke, I went through the various phases of um, not believing in to accepting all those different stages of when I discovered what happened at Niagara Falls. So um, I've, I've gotten back to a place where it's still really impressive to go see, even just a fraction of the water, partly because the engineers have done a good job, to be fair, of what they were supposed to do. It still looks good, it's still impressive. It's still, I joke with my students sometimes, when we get into those debates about what's nature and wilderness versus not, it's like, if it can kill you, it's probably nature and wilderness more, more easily. So Niagara Falls is still pretty powerful. And it can, um, there, there were people have argued that, what is it? The ions, the falling ions, negative ions created by a waterfall is what created the romantic feeling. And that's why people went to Niagara Falls for honeymoon. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's been debunked, but there is arguments that there are some actual physical, physiological, effects of falling water beyond the aesthetic that do something to people. I mean, there's also a negative, there's the roar and same with the guazu and places like that. There's other senses in the mist and all that, but I don't know if I have <laughs> a better question of why do we like waterfalls so much? I just know I like them and other people seem to, they still get almost 30 million people a year at Niagara Falls combined or somewhere between sort of 22 to 30 yeah. million people, even if they're for casinos and things like that more often than water. No, we took our honeymoon there because of negative ions. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we have a, a question from uh, Sam. Hello there. Thank you very, uh, thank you very much. It's very interesting um, research and the discussion so far is very interesting as well. I, picking up on this idea of the industrial sublime and the natural sublime, I wonder how how these groups of engineers were um, also promoting this work within the state and to outside agencies because that's one of the areas that one sometimes comes across other kinds of aesthetics and of uh, representation of engineering projects is when agencies want to show you that they've done this amazing job but of course if the job is to hide the job that they did i don't know if um, i don't know if that leaves much of a trace or you find um perhaps images of, of some of those projects that are hidden from the public, but recorded in some way that was shared inter internally? Yeah, that, that's sort of that interesting contradiction where they're trying to hide it, but they're really eager to show off what they're doing too. So they had as part of that, the tourism, they opened up the models to groups and hundreds of thousands of people went to see the models. They take bus tours, just, um, they did them, as I said, in a few different places. So um, one of the main models was in what is now sort of the greater Toronto area. So it's pretty proximate to Niagara Falls plus a lot of people. Um, so they would uh, take people to go see it as part of um, you know, the showing off of what they're doing. In terms of engineers promoting, um, they fought for models in many ways in order to exclude other experts. They were the ones with the expertise who knew how to use and read models. That was part of the reason they argued models are what happened, ha, had to be used, sort of to separate uh, other professions or other experts to sort of you know, keep for themselves that expertise since they were the only ones who knew, knew how to operate them. Um, so certainly you got lots of yeah, the debates within the engineers and different groups, but they could often unify together in order to fight with the governments who were concerned about cost. And that's how, that's how they mostly sold it. They said that we can make all our mistakes on the models first that'll save a lot of money. So Ontario, they later claimed to save $5 million to use the models uh, at the very least, um, even though that was kind of a disingenuous claim because they just put off work that cost about $7 million till after the project was done. But it probably did save 
I get into the book a lot of here's here's the errors it caused, right? If you're off by a fraction of a centimeter on the model, that ends up being being off by 10 feet <laughs> um, in in the real river. So there were, were lots of problems that way. Um, I'm not sure if I'm hitting all of your question though. Is um, was there another part yeah. of the question? That um, no, that, that 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 was really interesting. I suppose um, the the questions coming out of um, my own research on on the Aswan Dam and images of that, which were partly produced to be shared within, not not necessarily only in a government setting, but certainly within a an elite um, sort of discourse. But but that's also a slightly different historical context, obviously. Right. Well, they did bring several thousand engineers and politicians from other countries came. So everyone was eager to come get the tour of the insider tour. And then of course, engineers, a lot of engineers were sought after, um, after this was a success and went to Egypt and to other countries, either as consulting engineers for private firms or, or working through government. So there definitely was this fraternity of engineers um, and a number of them had worked and you know, some of the engineers that were involved in this had worked on uh, in the Soviet Union already, in the Ukraine and uh, other parts. So they're definitely tied into those transnational networks and definitely diplomats, engineers from abroad and those within the US and Canadian governments did sort of eagerly, eagerly sign up for those free helicopter trips to see things like that. So they did show it off, I guess is what I'm saying a lot internally, um, but they also, and that was their contradiction of how much can we show off because we want to show our prowess, but we also want people not to know. So it's almost kind of a pay attention now when we remake it and then forget about it and see the natural waterfall later on. Um, I think that was kind of their hope in some ways. Right, so Dalton has another question. Yeah, I, I have to ask about the emotions um, part of your research being one of the few environmental histories that is you know, you're trying to engage with emotions history. Um, to say a little bit about where that factors in, what kinds of emotions um, are, are relevant in this story and, and how do they affect its playing out? Right, yeah, and so the emotion stuff is, you know, drawing on your work and Andrea Gaynor's work and other people, because there aren't a whole lot of done emotions. So this was my foray into it and um, Mostly this concerns that 1965 to 1975 period, because this is, um, so I mentioned before, they would do the surveys. So they put up pamphlets where people were supposed to select an option and they brought people to the models. And it was sort of, sometimes it was a case of, you know, when they test people for TV shows and there's the experts behind a window, a two-way window you can't see through and they're just watching them trying to, they want them to, and this is, they debated a lot about what does the sublime mean now? Because the sublime always has been thrilled, but the, you know, being thrilled, but there's all has to be an element of danger, to, I, I think, for the classical understanding of the sublime, or at least the, the Niagara version of the sublime was impressed, but also in danger in some way. So that's what they debated a lot about was, are people, do people feel scared? I don't want them to feel too scared, because if they're too scared, they don't want to come. We want them to be impressed, but we don't want them to be just impressed like a painting. There has to still be that element of wildness or you know, that there is some danger here. If you slip over the edge, you're going to, to die sort of thing. And uh, that is part of what came into that American Falls study is they, when they were investigating whether they could remove the talus, they realized that there were a lot of unstable parts of the actual waterfall. And that's where people were, were the viewing stations. They closed those for a decade. And so that's, they talked a lot about, we want people to experience a sense of danger, but not actual danger. 
So it was, it was, that was part of the problem was they never, I think in some ways they never came to a concrete definition of what they thought sublime meant for the 1960s or 1970s. So they still kind of went back to, well, we as the experts, we're going to get opinions from people, but we know what's best for people. So it's kind of using that quanti quantitative data to make qual or qualitative measurements to then turn that into quantitative data of, you know, we, and treating tourists still a bit as an aggregate, compiling them into here sort of a tourist view. And then we know best how to, what that should look like when we turn that into an actual waterfall. All right, I think we shall wrap up there. So thank you to Daniel McFarland for talking about his book, Fixing Niagara Falls. And thank you to you all for coming. Thanks everybody. <laughs>